0: We're excited. It's 1 Samuel chapter 25. We will be looking at this chapter in its entirety. So if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles. 1 Samuel 25, this is God's Word to us. Let's give our attention to it. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Moon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and Beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers now your own shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel ask your men and they will tell you therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread, and my water, and my meat that I have killed? For my shears, and give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. And therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seethers of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now, David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and in the care of your Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or For my Lord working salvation himself, and when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. And I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail to Carmel, they said to her, "David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife." And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, "Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my lord." And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and Five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, to the son of Laish, who was in Gilead. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, Truly a privilege to come before Your presence this afternoon. We're tremendously grateful for the Word that has been proclaimed this morning. And once again, we ask, we ask that You would attend Your Word by Your Spirit. These are beautiful things. These are weighty things. And we ask for Your help. We pray for Your help. Instruct us, guide us, lead us to Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I would like to start out this afternoon by asking the wives in our congregation a few questions. Now, wives, these are rhetorical questions, and so keep the answers to yourselves, especially the area right around this section Here, (laughs) is your dear husband the proud owner of any peculiar habits? Does he think the laundry basket is just for decoration when taking off his socks? Is admitting that he is wrong a rare event like, you know, the spotting of a unicorn? And who else has experienced a monologue at sunrise when all you want is a peaceful cup of coffee? I'm sure many of you have compiled a laundry list of your husband's quirks. You can be honest, living with your husband is no walk in the park. We can be rash, we can be quick-tempered, arrogant, yes, sometimes lazy, and blissfully lacking in self-awareness. These are the common ailments of the male gender, and of course, we know that this is what marriage is all about. Learning to live with And to deal with your spouse. So, wives have to learn to deal and cope with their husbands, to be patient with them, to help them, to love them. And dare I say, occasionally protecting them from their own flawed selves at times. Well, this afternoon in the chapter before us, we have a husband that doesn't just have a few flaws. Rather, he has a laundry list of sinful vices. And yet, what we will see through his wife's, Tom Nabal's wife's masterful wisdom, we witness not only the preservation of God's anointed one, but the very wisdom of God. So, we left off a couple of weeks ago. We witnessed how... How David spared Saul's life at the cave of Engedi. This resulted in a temporary ceasefire between Saul and David. Realizing that David was the better man, Saul calls off his hunt, well, at least for a time. And he leaves David alone. And it is during this ceasefire. That the prophet Samuel dies, as you recall, Samuel Samuel has done much good for Israel. He w- he filled the role of prophet. He did a lot of priestly work of the 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 role of judge. He was instrumental of the Lord to be what we would call the king maker. With uprightness, Samuel governed Israel. He proclaimed God's word to them. He interceded for them. He even fought their battles. And once again, he anointed not one, but two of Israel's kings. There's very little that Samuel has not done for Israel. But now, now Samuel is gone. Note how verse 1 opens our chapter. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel was gathered to his people, and he was laid to rest. Now, with this death, and we could say this, really, with the death of any great leader, we know that a vacuum of leadership is created. And in particular, we ask this question, or at least we should, who is going to fill these leaders' shoes? And with this void, the text now shifts back over to David. Yes, the background of our text here is the question of who will be the true heir of Samuel. Will David succeed in carrying on the noble torch of Samuel? Well, we find David traveling down south in the desert region of Paran, which is the desert region, listen to this, of Judah. Okay, this is where he was back in chapter 23. This area we were introduced... In particular now to this married couple, a very rich married couple. The husband is loaded. He has three hundred excuse me, three thousand sheep, he has a thousand goats. Basically, we could say this he's a millionaire. Now this man has a name that makes us all want to scratch our head for a moment. What was his parents thinking? Nabal means fool. This would be the equivalent of naming your son something along the lines of Hitler or Saddam Hussein. And yet we quickly learn that this man lives up to his name, for he is harsh and he is full of evil deeds. In fact, the sense of fool here is much more foul than just lacking wisdom or being unwise. You see, Nabal is vicious. He's materialistic. He's egocentric. He is a misfit. He's a greedy miser who doesn't play well with others. In fact, there's another play on words here, and in particular with his tribal name. You see, Caleb means dog. So this Calebite is dog-like, and yet somehow this guy Nabal, he married up way up above his station, for he married the complete opposite of himself. For Abigail means, my father was delighted. And Abigail is not only beautiful, which is a sign of God's favor, but she was exceptional in insight. She excels in knowledge as well as prudence. Her wit is sharp. And her heart is wise. So what we have in this couple is basically beauty and the beast. Or we could say it this way, Mr. Folly married lady wisdom. Now, our narrative picks up at the time of year when they're about to shear the sheep. This would have been a huge celebration for Israel during this time. Everyone gets together, they shear the sheep, and then they have this just magnificent feast. And so, David now takes this opportunity to make a simple request of hospitality. In fact, there's a stark contrast of locations in our text that the narrator really wants us to focus on. You see, David is out in the wilderness according to the end of verse 1. He is out in the desert with his men, scraping on whatever rations and water they can find. While Nabal, where is he? He's in Carmel. Carmel means garden land. The point of the contrast is that we have a rich man feasting on meat in a garden. And then we have David and his men, hungry and thirsty, in a dry desert land. And so David sends 10 messengers to ask for a small bite, whatever Nabal can spare. Now, let me set this up for you just for a moment. In Israel, during times of feasting, during times of abundance, it was a time for sharing. It was an opportunity to share with those that were less fortunate. In fact, in Israel, it was your moral duty for hospitality. Now, let's be clear. David is far from begging from food here. Not only is his request bathed in politeness and respect, as we have read, but it also mentions how David really increased Nabal's bottom line. His return on investment, we could say. Nabal's shepherds have been grazing the sheep out next to David and his men. And during the entire time, listen to this, the text even tells us that not a single thing went missing. You see, when you graze your sheep out in the wilderness, you're going to expect to lose a few to predators like lions and bears and such. That's just the normal cost of doing this kind of business. But not this year, not this year for Nabal, for David and his men guarded both the sheep and the shepherds. And what better man to do it than a shepherd himself, David. So much so that not a single lamb was lost. The result then would have been a larger herd and and ultimately more money for Nabal's wallet and all because of David. And my point this afternoon is this. It would have been appropriate and fitting for Nabal to show his appreciation for David. And yet if David was expecting normal human decency and just a little gratitude, well, he sorely misjudged this man. Nabal hears his request, and he scoffs, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? These are questions of scorn. These are questions of derision. Essentially, Nabal is saying that David is a nobody. In fact, look at what Nabal says about David at the end of verse 10. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master's, He's essentially saying that David is a runaway slave. And as you guys recall, we, we have covered that, that he has, he has been set free with, by Jonathan. He was nothing of a rebellious or runaway slave. He is not a rebellious servant. He asked another question, why should I take food and drink that are for my shears and give it to this mangy mongrel named David? Well, brothers and sisters, this is a horrible response. I want to read for you what one writer says about this particular section. Quote, It is obvious that Nabal knew very well who David was, and of course he would, since he names David's father even as he pretends to view him as of no account. Indeed, It is not realistically possible that David's fame had not preceded him to Moan and to Carmel. Nabal went further and scorned David as a mere renegade who was beneath his charity. I'll say it this way, a Calebite is from what tribe? Think about that, Judah. You don't think that that he would have heard of the exploits of David? And obviously, even in his own account, he knew who David's father was. My point is this, not, not only was this a crime against hospitality, it was also shameful, very shameful, very evil for David and his men. David increased Nabal's bottom line, and now he is treated like this? Now, there's even more to Nabal's wickedness. And this comes out when the servant tells Abigail what went down. Note how David asked Nabal to confirm his servants that nothing went missing. Note the first line in verse 8. It says, ask your men and they will tell you. Well, fact-checking is below Nabal. He's already made up his mind about David. Let's not let the facts of the situation get in the way. But to Abigail, the servant confirms both the truth of what David says. Note how the servant describes the actions of David and his men. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, how did the servant describe Nabal's response to David's men? Look at verse 14. This is important. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold! David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and it says this, and he railed against them. He told her, Nabal railed against them. Nabal's words in verses 10 and 11, then, were yelled out. He screamed in a tantrum, over my dead body will you get any meat or any water or anything. Next, in verse 17, the servants call Nabal a worthless man. This is the exact phrase or term used for Hophni and Phineas, And as you recall, well, they were beyond bad. Finally, Nabal is the kind of guy you can't speak or reason with. This is the hallmark feature, listen to me, of a fool in all of Scripture. Nabal is such an arrogant, arrogant hothead that you can't even talk to him. If He'll just bite your head off if you ask what we would call a, le, a legitimate or innocent question. So, ladies, how would you like to be married to Nabal? Well, David, his ten men report back to him what Nabal said, and as you could only imagine, David is livid. Nabal just sinned against David, and David is furious. Look at David's immediate response in verse 13. He says, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. So we see David is ready to go to war over this. So much so that he doesn't just send his men, he's strapping his sword. He's been wrong, and he is ready to go out for blood. So much so that before the night is over, the ground will be soaked in blood. A crisis of life and of death now is at hand. And it is in this war zone scenario that we see Abigail spring into action. Brothers and sisters, you cannot help but be impressed by this lady. First, she doesn't tell Nabal what she is doing. Now, I'd like to submit something to you. This could be perceived by many as being non-submissive to her husband. But that is not the case. You see, wisdom and prudence understands that you don't talk to someone if you know that they're going to make matters worse. Or we could say it this way, when to not answer a fool according to his own folly. And so Abigail knows that this is not only for Nabal's good, that he doesn't know. She's trying to save his life, you get it? And to bring this up, he's going to just make things worse. Now secondly, Abigail seems fully aware of the dangerous combination of this, listen to me, of rage and man, of anger and man. A furious man is too hot and unstable to reason with. And so we know that anger must cool before reason can operate. And Abigail senses how David must feel right about now. And so she realized that he must be fuming. We could say it this way, and I've seen this to be the case, even the best of men, when they are livid, is too dangerous to reason with. So Abigail assembles a generous gift of bread, of wine, of meat, fruit cakes, and she sends them off ahead of her. In fact, we can see this played out beautifully in 18 and 19. Let's look at it one more time again. Starting in verse 18, it says Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five sias of parched grain. And a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So this gift of food will be like hot, uh, excuse me, this gift of food is going to be like water on a hot rock or on A raging fire. And the point is to cool David down just a bit. Now, right before they meet, we are told just how furious David is in verses 21 and 22. But I want to focus in just on verse 22. It says, this is David. He says, God do so to the enemies of David and more also, listen to this, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Brothers and sisters, David is so ticked that he swears not just to kill Nabal, but every male in Nabal's household. He is seething with murderous rage, he is fuming for blood. Who does this remind us of in most recent accounts? And this is important for us to see. There's an opportunity for him to basically sin just like Saul has in the past. And this is not good. And now we see why this upcoming meeting between David and Abigail is actually so scary. David is riding in hot on a narrow gorge at the foot of a mountain, and he meets Abigail head on. Abigail dismounts. She runs over. She falls on her face, and she grabs David's foot. Brothers and sisters, think about this. She grabs the foot of an armed and dangerous hothead. With one swing of that sharp sword, David could have put an end to her life. This is like running out in front of a charging army. The courage of Abigail is truly commendable. But if that impresses you, just listen to her speak. In fact, I'd like to submit to you that Abigail's speech here is a mastery of rhetoric as well as of intercession. And and, and I want to also say this, that this theme of her own speech lies now at the center of this chapter and is really the heart of the rest of 1 Samuel. Abigail's speech is the defining moment in all of David's wilderness wanderings. And to read it, to hear her, to listen to her words, you will see that this is in no way surprising. For the first thing out of her mouth, verse 24, brothers and sisters, listen to the gospel. On me alone, my Lord. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Abigail offers offers herself up as what? As Nabal's substitute. She asks David to impute her husband's sin to whom? To her. To place his guilt on her. What a wife. What a wife. She offers to take the fall for her bonehead husband's sin. Now, in doing this, she doesn't make an excuse she doesn't blame Schiff for Nabal. In fact, she calls it like it is. Note what she says to David in verse 25. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. She calls her husband a worthless fellow. You should try to be married to him, is essentially what she's saying. His name is. Is as he is. He is a fool through and through. My point here is this: Abigail rightly appeals to David's justice. Nabal is a wicked man who sinned against David, and there is a righteousness in David's anger. And so she's not taking that away. And in fact, she's saying, "Hey, you, you are right to be angry." But she does something else. Now, she's going to affirm her innocence, and this is important. Note the end of verse 25. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. You see, Abigail can only be a substitute for Nabal's sin if she is innocent. And so she declares her innocence and condemns her husband, but then offers none the less than to bear his sin. This is incredibly brave, and it is immensely wise. Now, after this opening statement, Abigail basically makes three points for us. i got to go quick here. The first one is in verse 26. Look at verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, behold, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She declares, may all of David's enemies be like Nabal. That is, that the Lord will punish both Nabal and all David's enemies. Look at this declaration. Because the Lord restrained you from blood guilt, from saving with your own hand, and this is the core issue. You see, the sin David is on the verge of committing is taking the law of God into his own hands. Does that sound familiar? That's the sin of Saul. Is seeking revenge with violence. David is right that Nabal is wicked, David is right that, that he deserves to be punished. But it is not David's place to mete out justice himself. We saw this a couple of weeks ago when he even acknowledged that he wouldn't touch God's anointed. He must leave vengeance to God. David cannot use violence to avenge himself. This would go against God's law, and it usurps the prerogative of God alone. Next, per second point. Abigail makes a series of astounding, I'm going to call them predictions, okay? I'm going to step out on a limb here. And I and I believe I can show this. You see in verses 28 through 30, she does this. She declares if not predicts several things. She says that God will give David what? A sure house. We could say this way, an enduring dynasty. The Lord will appoint David prince or king over Israel, and Abigail is confident that David will be king. In fact, what is beautiful in her rhetoric is that she uses the imagery of the fall of Goliath. Abigail promises that God will sling out David's enemies in the hollow of a what? Of a sling. Just as Goliath fell with the throw of one sling, so will God do to all of David's enemies. And now the third most remarkable point. Abigail declares that evil will not be found in David all of his days. David is on the verge of a heinous sin. And Abigail assures David that God will sustain his righteousness. Abigail zeroes in on the most important thing for David's throne. Listen to me. His righteousness unstained. Now I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'm, because some I know how these things work. You're already thinking fast forward. Well, wait a minute, I know David messed up a few times. Bear with me. Bear with me. Abigail practically speaks here like a prophetess, but she hasn't been granted special revelation. Rather, It's her wisdom rightly reading providence. Well, her final point is a few petitions in verse 31. She asks that no pangs of conscience be on David. She petitions that David not commit blood guilt. Then she prays that the Lord would do good to him. And finally, she slips in a request that David would remember her. Abigail asks for David's forgiveness in verse 28. And now she asked that David would remember her for good. Well, this is Abigail's incredible speech. I could have spent a lot more time on this, but, but bear with me. What can we gain from her speech? We can see that her bravery comes from the boldness of wisdom in the face of a dire situation. It was her risking her life, not only for her fool of a husband, but to, listen to me. And think about this, to save David's throne. In fact, this is what David himself acknowledges in his own response. Look at it with me in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David blesses the Lord and Abigail. He admits that the Lord used Abigail to save David himself. For left to himself David's fury would have caused him to shed blood and thus taking the law into his own hands. But because of the bold wisdom of this lady, David was delivered from his own anger and he did not sin. And in this, David learns a valuable lesson, and this is something for us to learn as well. He learns to take advice, and he learns to take instruction. As the proverb says, you rebuke a fool, and he hates you. You rebuke a wise man, and he loves you. Fools don't listen, and kings are very prone to this fault as we have seen in Saul. But a wise king. A wise king needs to take advice and correction. And David shows himself to be a man that can be corrected, to be teachable, a man who listens. David even overcomes that hubris of listening to a woman. And so David receives Abigail's gifts, and he sends her off in peace. Now, once Abigail gets home, she continues to exhibit her excellent insight. For when she arrives, she witnesses Nabal feasting. In fact, so much to the point of drunkenness. Like a typical fool, Nabal engages in gluttony and drunkenness. And that's the point the narrator is trying to show. It, in fact, there's a very noteworthy statement, and it is full of irony in our narrative. In verse 36, it says that Nabal, listen to this, was feasting like a what? Like a king. This fool pretends to live like a king while he leaves the real king of Israel out in the desert without a bite. To eat. And of course, Abigail knows that you can't reason with someone who is drunk. So she waits until he's sobered up in the morning when the wine has gone out of him. And then she tells, them, tells him all that happened. And God, at that point, avenges David. Nabal hears and his heart dies and he becomes like a stone. Nabal finally realizes the consequences of his folly, and he is essentially frozen in a coma. And our text says that 10 days later, he is dead. Abigail's predictions come true. God would protect David, and he would avenge his enemies. And now it's time for David to step up to the plate. You see, when an excellent woman becomes a free agent, you don't want to waste any time. You single men should take notes. As the proverb says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. She is far more precious than jewels. So David sends his servants to make a marriage proposal. And thankfully, Abigail quickly accepts the offer. She saddles her donkey and she rides off to become his wife. They say behind every great man is a great woman. Well, Abigail has shown herself to be a wonderful example of Lady Wisdom. Proverbs Wisdom says that by her, kings rule. Thus, behind the great reign of David, we see the wisdom of Abigail. Abigail saved David and his reign from himself in this narrative. In fact, who knows how many more times she would have done this. David found a great wife in Abigail if he would have only stuck with one. And yet Abigail's wisdom didn't just serve David and the future reign of David. Her insight served us as well. For what was her, what was her core speech to David? And this is the focus, the remaining of our time. Well, it was the anointed one or the anointed king that had to remain upright. He could not be tainted by blood guilt and violent revenge. And so her prediction was that no evil would be found in David. And the ground of her prediction was that God would restrain David from sin. As Abigail saw even more clearly than David did himself, that God's anointed king, listen to me, that God's anointed king... Must be righteous. She understood that the number one quality in a king is righteousness. And in this, the Lord used her declaration to point us to someone so much better than David. Let me ask you real quick. In Jesus' day, what did the crowds want in the Messiah? Do you remember? Some wanted a miracle worker. A king that would heal all their diseases and provide food for their bellies. For those that have been around me, we covered the book of John a long time ago. I called it Jesus Buffet. And that's what they wanted. They wanted their bellies full. Others wanted a king to free themselves from taxes. You know, liberty and prosperity is what the king did. But most of them wanted a Messiah that was going to shed blood. Roman blood. The disciples struggled to understand why Jesus would not use violence. They asked Him, please call down fire from heaven. They missed what Abigail saw from afar, that the Messiah must be righteous and that He must leave the vengeance up to God. And that the law that the Father set before Jesus was this, that our Lord Jesus Christ must suffer. He must be handed over. He must be crucified. And this was the obedience before our Lord. And His keeping it was priority number one. And thus, Abigail's wisdom perceived that the Anointed One of God must first suffer, and not avenge himself. And as Abigail's insight looked beyond David to Christ, she ended up imitating Christ himself. For what did Abigail do here? She confessed the foolish sin of Nabal, and then she said, let his sin fall on me. She offered herself, listen to me, to die for a fool. Now, we know that people will at times die for a friend. There are many that would be willing to do that. And in fact, there may be even an occasion that someone one might actually die for an enemy. But let me ask you, would you die for a fool? Who would die for a fool? Very little if no one. Fools die because they bring evil down on their own heads. You see, fools destroy themselves. But this is exactly what Christ did for us. What Christ did for you. Jesus died not only for sinners, but he died for fools. He died for you. Psalm 14 says A fool says in his heart, What? You guys know it. There is no God. In fact, Psalm 14.1, right? The fool said there is no God. And it says this, They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And yet Christ died for these. He died for you and for me in our folly. If you want to be someone in this story, we are not David, we're not even Abigail. We are Nabal. And yet, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He first loved us, and He died for us when we were fools. When we denied Him, He loved us. When we hated Him, He died for us. Christ was crucified to save us from ourselves. This is the love and wisdom of our Savior. He became your substitute so that you might have forgiveness and life. Brothers and sisters, Christ is both our righteous King and He is our wise King. And as a result, we both, He saves us and He leads us in wisdom. What is one of the first principles of wisdom? Have you thought about that? It's to listen to Him. To be wise is to, to humbly acknowledge your lack of wisdom and to seek the wisdom of Christ. Christ builds us up in the faith. And wisdom, by His Word and by His truth, we are sanctified. By His gospel, we are purified. And by Christ' instruction, every Lord's Day, guess what we do? We get to grow in wisdom So what is the best thing for your faith? It is to listen. To listen to the Gospel. It is to take correction from the law of God. Be someone who listens. May we be known to be listeners and doers of Christ our King. For as we listen to Him, His Gospel is our life and strength. And our wisdom unto everlasting life.